Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. Guys, exciting episode today. This is how to become a whale with a whale, Tetranode, a DeFi whale on crypto Twitter. We're talking to him, unpacking the alpha today. There's a few takeaways for you. I'm going to list them here real quick. Number one, why farmers like Tetranode are the best alpha. Number two, why Tetranode loves Ethereum, not alt layer ones. It's an interesting discussion. Number three, alpha from Tetranode's Infinity Gauntlet. These are the projects <laughs> he thinks are going to be the next big thing. Number four, how to survive the whale games that are played in crypto. Number five is actually parting advice, how to become a whale. And that is the theme of this episode. David, this is pretty cool with Tetranode. What'd you think? The Tetranode story is such a story that you can only find in crypto. My gut take on Tetranode is that he's a guy that really resonates with the crypto industry itself. And maybe perhaps in the rest of the world without crypto might have been just a guy. But in crypto, he's Tetranode. And so like he really <laughs> found his calling for yeah. because of crypto, because of what crypto brings to the It's somewhat true table. of all of us, I think, mm -hmm. like of a lot of people in crypto. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely find resonance with that as well. And I think we start this podcast on common ground with you, me, Tetranode, and most every one of the listeners, at least the ones that played like, you know, internet games back in like the late 90s, early 2000s, talking about StarCraft and the meta and how to think about game theory and how to move quickly and press buttons. And the conversation kind of rolls from there. And so using that as a foundation to consider crypto games and DeFi games and how to corner markets is a really interesting parallel. And ultimately we come full circle back to a very similar conversation at the very end. And you know, just to set some context, I mean, Tetranode's a pretty big whale, right? It's a pretty big whale. It's like I don't I don't know how you measure that in terms of like amount of ETH or like but it's a lot. I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. The brand is that he's a big yeah, whale. Big whale. We're talking a lot of money. And mm -hmm. he's got some really interesting takes and some really interesting projects. I do get a feeling like unlike other whales, maybe we've talked to on Bankless or we've interacted with in the past, he is not purely a trader. Mm. Like he's not like dumping on people. Right, he's, he's a not, positive sum whale. He's a positive sum whale. It's almost like an early stage investor with a massive pool of capital. Mm -hmm. I'd almost say like it's sort of a VC type model, but it's not a VC. It's done in a very mm -hmm. uh, DeFi native, crypto native way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so cool that he can do this as an independent individual without like an office in right. Silicon Valley. Uh, like without a uh, you know a massive team, it's just kind of him. He's putting in the time, mm -hmm. working a hundred hour weeks. He said, but he's also like living life. You know, he's also he has a family, and he's also like you know spending time with his kids. And it's a really cool juxtaposition. And this is something that crypto uniquely enables, right? He's a one man VC, and I bet you he's probably outperformed the average VC, probably <laughs> yes, significantly. By a I'm lot. Gonna go, uh, go ahead and guess. And this is exactly the power that crypto enables people where like, no, you don't need a family office. You don't need lawyers. You don't need infrastructure. You can do this from home. Like you could hear his kids in the background and the guy is outperforming everyone. And he's also anonymous. Like you don't even actually need to know his name. So these are the powers that private keys in crypto can really imbue upon everyone. And so we kind of start this and end this conversation as like, hey, we want everyone to be a whale too. And so Tetranote has his way of 
becoming a whale and carving out his niche. And he has those lessons that he can impart upon us. And we can take those lessons into consideration. But at the end of the day, everyone needs to take their own path. I hope every listener here becomes their own whale in their own specific niche inside of this greater DeFi ecosystem. And maybe Tetranode is just carving the path for the rest of us. I think we'll leave our other thoughts for the debrief, David. But Mm -hmm. one last thing I'll say is like one lesson I learned is anybody can be a whale Mm -hmm. because it actually depends on the size of the pool that you're in, Mm. right? And so even Tetranode, he's not an ETH whale. He's not a Bitcoin whale. Mm -hmm. But in markets that he's closer to where he's got a um, kind of a larger vested interest, uh, he's working directly with the teams. He is a whale. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lesson for us all. I hope you enjoy this episode with Tetranode. We're going to get right to it. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. If you're going bankless, you need MetaMask. This is your tool to unlock the world of DeFi without giving up custody over your private keys. MetaMask is both a secure in-browser wallet and also a secure bridge for your hardware wallet. You can now trade tokens on any DEX or aggregator. MetaMask Swap gathers real-time pricing information across all the DeFi exchanges, allowing you to select your best price while getting all the MetaMask benefits of self-custody, lower gas costs, and increased transaction success rates. MetaMask also has a fantastic mobile wallet that I use when I'm out and about which I use to collect POAPs, NFTs, and do all my DeFi things while I'm away from home. If you haven't downloaded MetaMask, you gotta try it out. Web3 wouldn't be the same without it. Download MetaMask for desktop and mobile at metamask.io and load up your Trezor, Ledger, Lattice, or Keystone hardware wallets so that they too can get into the world of Web3. Bankless is proud to be sponsored by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum that lets you trade any token at the current market price. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. The Uniswap Grants Program is accepting applications for grants. Do you have something of value that you think you want to contribute to the Uniswap ecosystem? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at uniswapgrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. The Layer 2 era is upon us. Ethereum's Layer 2 ecosystem is growing every day, and we need L2 bridges to be fast and efficient in order to live a Layer 2 life. Across is the fastest and cheapest and most secure cross-chain bridge. With Across, you don't have to worry about the long wait times or high fees to get your assets back to the Layer 1. Assets are bridged and available for use almost instantaneously. Across's bridges are powered by UMA's optimistic Oracle to securely transfer tokens from Layer 2 back to Ethereum. Across is critical ecosystem infrastructure and ownership is being handed over to the community. You can be a part of this story of Across by joining the Discord and becoming a co-founder and helping to design the fair, fair launch of Across. If you want to bridge your assets quickly and securely, go to across.to to bridge your assets between ETH Optimism, Arbitrum, or Boba Networks. Bankless Nation, we are super excited to introduce you to our next guest. You know him as Tetranode. At least I hope you do. You should if you don't. He is a famous DeFi anon. He's known for his Oracle Whale Twitter profile. And I think that's a tip of the hat to how he's kind of a whale on Ethereum. Very active on Twitter, generated a cult following of his own. People pay attention to what Tetranode says. They pay attention to what he does, what assets he buys. And now we're going to hear from the man whale himself. Because I think all of us have one thing in common, David. We all want to be whales. Mm -hmm. Tetranode, 
It's great to have you on Bankless. Welcome. Hello. Hey. I just kind of dropped myself into here unprepared, but you know, there's no rustling of paper to sign as noted with the last <laughs> interview. So it's, it's totally uh, off the record here. That's awesome. I guess. I think it's better that way. Yeah. I think that's Candid. why people enjoy you the most is because the off the cuff nature yeah. and the very casual identity that you have portrayed yourself is very real yeah. to a lot of people. Okay. okay. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do on this podcast is we're going to get real, real. In addition to that, Tetranode, we want you to teach us how to become a whale <laughs> like you. Because I think a lot of people listening to Bankless want to be Tetranode when they grow up. Okay. So I'll give you my best shot. Like, um, <laughs> you know, part of it is the sort of the endless digging that we all go through. We live and breathe this up, but sometimes like you can expose like two people to the same situation and they would like act differently, you know, like I treat it as, as like a, a video game, like, like an RTS, you know, like Starcraft. So you have like a fog of war and you have very limited, you know, uh, intelligence. So you go out there and you scout and, and you dig and, and the more info you find, the better uh, situated you are. So that's like the, the general high level overview. So I can go detail by detail, you know, like what I did. That's cool. And you sound like you're maybe a gamer by background too. A hardcore gamer. That's a little RTS, like, you know, Warcraft 3 or something, the Fog of War. Yeah, all of them. Yeah. Like I first started Age of Empires, you know, and, and then it was like, uh, the next one was Starcraft and then Warcraft uh, 3. I am with it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this is what I did. Yeah. And it, how do you think these games like taught you to be like good in crypto? Um, it kind of taught me about like resource management, you know, and how to deal with decision-making with information, you know, with limited information. So I used to play a lot of chess as well, you know, like like I first started chess when I was 16 and then I actually made it to like state level and then I got silver medal just like one year right afterwards. So that was like totally unexpected. And then afterwards I went on to college, so I just cut it off right there. But I, I just kept thinking, had I done it, like when I was six, I would have been like the national champion, but would have, could have, should have, you know, had I been like in Bitcoin in 2009, you know, I would have been, <laughs> <laughs> don't we all, don't we all? Anyways, I digress. It's interesting. We've seen so many people show up in crypto and be extremely successful via poker. Yeah. Um, Hazu is a famous poker player. Uh, Hasib. Hasib is a famous poker player. Ari uh, Paul as well, I think. Yeah. Poker and crypto go hand in hand. Yeah. But I'm also not surprised that RTS, like StarCraft games, also do well in crypto. But also, you're the only person that I've actually like articulate the fact that StarCraft in these RTS games are kind of like the original backgrounds yeah. of your skill set. Yeah. And the differentiator, I think, between poker and StarCraft is there's so much speed in StarCraft. You got to press buttons real fast in StarCraft yeah. to, to be able to keep up with the meta. Can you comment on that and how perhaps that influenced your style yeah. with how you engage with these crypto systems? So just, just as a disclaimer, I'm... I know poker, but I'm a really bad poker player. <laughs> yeah. But when it comes to StarCraft, you know, there is a uh, sort of uh, chance, you know, there's a chance in the scenario, but a large part of it is the decision making and you can become very methodical in, in the way that you press forward, you know, on your strategy and how you manage things. There's just a lot more decision making in StarCraft, like as you would with crypto. I think that lends it a better background than poker, you know, like poker, you have multiple outcomes, multiple probabilities, but in StarCraft, you actually resolve it to one using hundreds of decisions. So there's a lot more granularity. And I think overall, it's just like a very, very difficult game to master. 
So that applies generally to RTS too. You know, I've played like from Age of Empires to like StarCraft two, which is like the last one that I played. I think just having that decision-making drilled into you, split second decision-making and also playing in team games as well. And just like managing the whole thing. So that, that also applies to like WoW guilds as well. But a concrete example of how like StarCraft strategy applies to like, say crypto is that, okay, when I'm playing like a four on four, you know, and there's this one guy talking shit over on the other side, you know, he says like, like suck it down or something. <laughs> and so the four of us, you know, are conspiring and we're like, Hey, let's go fuck that dude over in particular. And so we did. And so he's screaming and taunting you a bit, but eventually we removed them from the map, you know, and, and we eventually overtook everyone. But those things, you know, in crypto kind of exemplifies teamwork. And there's a lot to be said about market making, you know, and psychology. So I think the, the same thing can be applied to crypto too. So there was a couple of times when someone was like talking shit about me and was like, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? You know, so I pissed him off with like a tetranote candle. <laughs> a tetranote candle. <laughs> Something like that. Wow. So now you're, you're lighting them up with like liquidity and crypto trading and like, you know, tetranode candles rather than like yeah. Starcraft Zerg yeah, swarms. So, yeah. <laughs> no Zerg lower <laughs> entries, just leave them in the desk, you know, and, and be like, this is how... You know, I control the market, so stop talking. Okay, so you play StarCraft, you play RTS games, you're an OG gamer, yeah. the classic Blizzard games. But also, in addition to that, without telling us who you are, who are you? Um, You know, I'm just trying to, I guess, like, crypto's become a hobby for me. Like, before, I was, like, a gamer, and I was looking for, like, you know, graphics card to build PCs with, and in 2010, the graphic card's prices got jacked up, and, and I'm, like... I can't find like these Radeon 5870s anymore. You know, what's going on? So I looked in the forums and there's this thing called Bitcoin mining and that, you know, struck my curiosity. So the first question is like, okay, this Bitcoin, you know, can I just like copy it, you know, copy and paste it and double spend, you know, that, that's a double spending problem. So I find out that I can't, you know, because of through hashing algorithm and, you know, just drove into the math. And after I figured out it was good, I intended to send $100, you know, to Mt. Gox, but the process was too difficult. And, you know, I was riding my bike in college and I was just like, forget it, too hard. You know, th this was in 2010. So, of course, we all have our moments of regret in crypto, you know, in the past, especially like in the early, like 2010. So that was one of my biggest regrets. That was a uh, eight-figure mistake, I think. Mm -hmm. And then what happened next? Right. So I saw the, the thing going up, you know, and I saw it go up to 30 and I was like, oh God, I should have, I should have, I should have. Then it crashed down to $2 and I was like, woof, dodge that bullet. <laughs> Didn't hear about it until like two years later, you know, Bitcoin is like $266, you know, in April, 2013. What? You gotta be kidding me. Yeah. And then, you know, every day from then on, I thought like what I would do with, with just like, you know, if I had like a thousand Bitcoin back then. And then 2013, I was, you know, working and a friend reminded me that Mt. Gox, you know, it just crashed. So that was my opportunity. And I had money at that time. And so I just dollar cost average over the course of like three years into Bitcoin. Actually, I ascended that because I just continued on to Ethereum. But yeah. It was filled with, uh, you know, like most of the stories of the early adopter, it was filled with FOMO, regret, and a lot of money thrown at uh, and waiting. So Tetranode, at what point 
did you feel like you became a whale? Um, you know what? When I got like, when I became like a millionaire, I didn't like feel anything. I just kind of sat there and just looked at it. <laughs> it's like that. Did that really happen? You know? And so I don't think like I felt like I was worth anything until 2018 when I started moving the markets in ways that I couldn't even imagine, you know, that that was like before the crash, like after the crash, I was like, um, I still held, but it was, uh, let's just say that, that as we held Ethereum through 1420 and it crashed down to 80, we lost like 94% of our net worth. I don't know like where you guys were you know at the moment but yep. I was oh it's painful yeah dollar cost average you're holding yeah 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 <laughs> crying yeah. sad back in the days like you had two options you know you had like um i think maker dow and you had like coinbase right so you can either buy it or hold it and i held it you know we didn't have farming we didn't have like options we didn't have puts or calls yeah so I pretty much just like held through the crash. So for the first like four years of crypto, I just like held, you know, so that I built a lot of discipline. So um, it's a discipline that most of these newcomers, I feel like they don't have because, you know, they have like a wide variety of options to jump from this to that. So you have like the rise of the rotators in this current gen. So Tetranode, you kind of started back in the early days, but, you know, maybe didn't stick with it until you had some money, you know, after Mt. Gox, you have 2013 dollar cost averaging in, mm -hmm. you started first feeling like a whale in that big Ethereum bull run. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you probably got in on Ethereum relatively early, you know, 2017 was just crazy, yeah. absolutely insane. And then early 2018, you're feeling like a whale, you're moving markets, and then boom, crash. Like 2018 just knocked the wind out of most of our sales. And then 2019, you know, continued. It was a cold, dark, bear market winter. So what were you doing at that time? It sounds like you stayed around, you mm -hmm. were still holding, but like, what were you doing? And then what was it like uh, coming out of that, maybe coming into 2020? You know, I was just like holding and traveling the world, you know, and just having a good time and just raising my family in 2019. 2018 was just like, oh God, my net worth is just like melting right before my eyes. <laughs> and then I kind of, you know, got on Twitter because I was on Reddit before. So a lot of crypto personalities like anti-pro synthesis and Mr. You can see, you know, they moved off Reddit because it, it wasn't the place to be for crypto anymore. So we moved on to Twitter. So on Twitter, I saw like a bunch of, you know, Bitcoin Matthews, like a Pompliano, just like spouting out complete bullshit, you know? So I was like PMing anti-pro synthesis and I was this person and that person and I was sparring with you on Reddit. So, um, you know, let, let's go and fight these, uh, Maxis together. So that started out with just uh, sort of dispelling untruths, you know, on Twitter. Because I was retired and I didn't have anything better to do, you know, aside from traveling the world and raising my family. But I also wanted to keep up with the news in crypto. Tetra, I have so much I want to unpack with so many questions about like why you were bullish Ethereum back in 2017. I often joke with Ryan about like before DeFi came around, before MakerDAO came around, like, 
why the hell were we excited about Ethereum? Because there wasn't that much there, like to be excited it's ICOs, about. Man. Like, it's the ICOs, <laughs> like. But I want to return to that conversation. But I'm also just intrinsically fascinated about, from what I've gathered from you from other podcasts and other just history lessons that I've heard you teach to you know other mediums, is that you were a person that I don't think expected wealth in his life, and then a bunch of wealth happened. How did you just deal with that? The crazy world of crypto, especially when it was so crazy back in the 2014 to 2016 era, like put a lot of wealth in people's hands that never expected it. Was that you? And like, how did you just like deal with that psychologically? That is a good question. You know, I just deal with it and just kind of stared at the screen blankly and just autistically about it. And it's just, just a number in front. Sounds like not dealing with it. <laughs> yeah, it's just a number, you know, and what we have in crypto is even better than what a lot of like famous people and executives don't have is privacy. Mm. So, you know, like I didn't want to make a big deal about it, you know, and be like this big shot guy buying diamonds off the store, you know, and showing off their blinks and Casios and Lamborghinis. I just kind of kept quiet and didn't do anything until I was able to buy like a house, you know, with like one third of my net worth. <laughs> it was a very nice house and, you know, still is. But yeah, like the ways that I think about it is like the money obtained in crypto it's not to spend money. The whole point of retirement is to take a nap anytime I want, you know, like, you know, I still drive like a Toyota. I don't care. Yeah. So when it comes to material wealth, that's not what I was looking for. I'm just looking for like to live and breathe in crypto and finding opportunities, you know, and to use that capital to kind of anchor myself further into the crypto space and further push it and become the market maker. One thing that I feel like I've learned about wealth is like, you know, the purpose of wealth is to make you free. Yeah. And if you're not achieving freedom with that wealth, then like, what is the point? Do you agree with that? Or what do you think the purpose of wealth actually is? What is it for you? The purpose of wealth? Well, I think it comes with several levels of needs fulfilled, you know, like, first of all, when I was like pissed poor, like, I'm just looking for money, period. So that's like, you know, you're gasping for air. So that that's like the, the level one. And then after you've done relatively well, you know, you're looking for like a million dollar or aka retirement or whatever. So once you achieve that, then what's next, you know, like my next goal is to make like other people that level too. And inadvertently in the process, you know, of keep digging and digging and through like several failed ventures, I was able to find like the flow state, which I am currently in right now. So I wasn't always successful. I invested into several ventures that didn't turn out so well, including like the Augur ICO. You know, even though I made profit off of it, it did not become like the market wide Oracle that it could have been, you know. So the other one was, was just like funfair, you know, you've heard like the legendary jazz, you know, which is known to be, uh, the co-creator of, uh, some Star Fox technology, I, I think. Anyways, so he was brilliant and, you know, he had experience behind him and he had reputation too. So I invested in the funfair. I looked at everything and it was good. However, I guess like it wasn't very well understood at the time that execution matters too, you know, so everybody was just like plowing their houses into ICOs. So Funfair went up a lot and I was not trying to take profit. So I kind of wrote it up and all the way down to like, you know, lower than it was during the ICO because I was waiting for them to execute and bring like a uh, product market fit to their project. You know, so product market fit is, is what I was looking for for the entire time. I wasn't looking for wealth. I was looking to become like the biggest customer on there 
so I can gamble, you know, and make money off of the platform. So my policy for most of the projects I'm involved in is that, am I going to be their biggest customer? If the answer is no, then it doesn't fit my use case. And therefore I have no like sort of pull over the project. You know, I must be their customer. I must be their biggest critic as well. So that brings it to skin in the game. Yeah. You want to be the big fish in the small pool sort of thing, or the whale, maybe I should say, yeah. not fish. So when it comes to like a product, you know, like uh, what kind of problem does it solve? You know, like I must be able to use it. So as you can see with like projects like DopeX, right? I'm like going in there and I'm playing with the options game too. I'm the market maker, you know, and I'm giving them all kinds of inputs and they're making great use of it. I want to talk about some of the projects you're excited about in a minute, Tetranode, and to like just hear what you think, you know, where you think some of the alpha is in the space. But before we do, I see you were talking about Funfair and Augur and some of these early ICO examples. And what's really interesting, you know, to me is you said, like, look, I made money on Augur, but yeah, it didn't blow it out of the park. And a lot of those early ICOs, they made returns denominated in USD and dollars, but they did not do very well denominated in ETH, right? So like the ETH you put in these ICOs right. far underperformed rather than just holding the ETH. Yeah. I'm curious what you do now. Like, how do you denominate your portfolio today? Do you denominate it in ETH? Do you denominate it in dollars? How do you sort of, what's your measure of wealth and liquidity? Um, it's all in ETH. Before, like, we were able to farm and print capital off of, like, our decentralized uh, platform, then it would have been more in U.S. dollar. But right now, you know, like, everything's denominated in Ethereum. Like, like okay, you know, if you want to market make, then you must have Ethereum as well. It goes with, like, the automated market making process. It's like, okay, so if you have, like, this many tokens, then what are you going to denominate it in USD or the pair that it's bought and sold into? So everywhere that we go, even if we cross bridges, you know, Ethereum is ubiquitous and there's no way around that. You know, this is speaking from an operational point of view. It's not even just like, you know, theory crafting. It's the hardest money on earth. I want to lean into that a little bit because Tetranode, you've been maybe loyal is the right word to Ethereum for a very long time, even before DeFi even came around. And so why were you bullish on Ethereum before DeFi was even a thing? Right. Because like I said earlier, like sometimes I joke with my early Ethereum friends before we even invented the word DeFi, like why were we excited about Ethereum? Like there were no examples. Yeah. There was nothing in the app layer that got us excited. Okay. What did you see in Ethereum that made you optimistic about its future back then? And do you still see that today? So in order to get excited about Ethereum back in the days, you know, you have to compare it to what Bitcoin offers. So... Back in the days, you know, you had like Bitcoin having like their sort of output script, having primitive things like colored coins, you know, and even the counterparty XCP. And while that is, uh, you know, a, a very sort of innovative step about Bitcoin, it did not go very far because of like the block time and sort of the limited language expressiveness that Bitcoin is limited to, right? So... I've read the Ethereum white paper, which is like, I believe, 58 pages long, you know, by Vitalik. And while I didn't understand everything that, that he had written, you know, I got the big picture about like smart contract, you know, and, and where crypto is heading. So when it first uh, launched in 2015, I bought the first Ethereum on Kraken and I told, you know, my colleague and my coworker, and uh, he's the shadow tetranote that is around to this day. It's not a very well-known fact, but there is someone, 
you know, like on my order of magnitude, just going around and quietly conspiring with me. <laughs> but anyways, so I told him that, that, you know, we're looking at like Bitcoin's biggest rival right now, you know, right at the time of the July launch of 2015, you know, right there. Mm -hmm. So we bought a bunch and we kept DCAing. And of course, like at the time, there was also the block war going on as well, you know, like with Gavin Andreessen and Mike Hearn. And they were battling the rest of the Blockstream Mafia on, you know, what, what the future of the Bitcoin scalability solution should be. So I was very, very angry that Bitcoin couldn't scale past one megabyte, you know, and, and they're kind of gimping it. So lots of things were said back and forth, you know, but ultimately I left for Ethereum because they offered a more flexible outlook. And they were more embracing of new ideas, whereas like you look at Blockstream and, and they look like the Taliban. So <laughs> goodbye to that. And I think a lot of people would ask that same question today, being similarly frustrated with Ethereum's scaling strategy and looking at new horizons with new technologies in, in 2021. Right. And so with all in 2021, it's been just the rise of the alt layer ones with new scaling solutions, kind of a fractal off of the same like frustration mm -hmm. about if mm -hmm. Bitcoin's scaling solutions or scaling debates, scaling wars back in 2016, 2017. Yeah. Um, but why? I mean, you're a farmer. You look at all the frontier projects that are across the ecosystem. But from what I've gathered, you've stuck generally to the Ethereum ecosystem. Why stay bullish in 2021? Why stay bullish on Ethereum? Right. And why kind of just like disregard the rise of the alt layer ones? Well, it all comes from the understanding of the scalability trilemma. You know, you can either have decentralization, security, and scalability, you know? Mm -hmm. So solving that trilemma is a very hard and, and long problem. And so far, the solutions that I've seen, you know, popping up like the quote unquote Ethereum killers, they don't quite solve the, the scalability trilemma, you know, to, to the satisfaction that, that we want to see. They're mostly engineering trade-offs, like Solana is just like, you know, like they, they implement like so many shitty, like engineering trade-offs that it's starting to show itself, you know, like the shortcuts that they take to scalability is unacceptable from a decentralization point of view. Not only that, but how am I going to trust, like, you know, the amount of money that I have on the Ethereum chain for Solana, you know, to have outages like that. And one day, what, what happens if they have complete outage? Not to mention their large node and their larger requirement would cause the node to become part of data center. And that fragility, you know, will have a fat tail consequence, kind of like the 1001 days of a turkey, right? Do people call you an ETH maxi for that opinion? I'm an ETH maxi. You know, I take it as it is. But, you know, like the first principle approach, you know, kind of rationalizes why I'm that way. Because like Ethereum, you know, we accept like scalability uh, issues. Like, like even Vitalik said himself that the scalability right now on the blockchain sucks. And that was years ago. And so solving that, that is, is a hard problem. You know, there are trade-offs to be made and we're, we're still researching it because even if Ethereum has like data sharding, now we come into the limitation of how much can a single threaded beacon chain handle and now how many executable shards do we need and how would that affect composability so it's not an easy problem and, and a lot of blockchains are making like different trade-offs 
But ultimately, Ethereum is the first and most decentralized. And the other ones, they, they often have a lot of VC money into it. So anything that you throw in there in terms of decentralization is probably uh, owned by, well, a number of entities. So have you kept your activities to just Ethereum and its related L2s and, and sidechains? Or have you actually gone on to other layer ones to, quote unquote, you know, farm the alpha there? Have you have you stuck to the Ethereum ecosystem or have you kind of, you know, take perhaps a, a short term profit maximalist approach and try to, you know, squeeze out some alpha into in some other ecosystems? I experimented with like a few other chains, you know, like Phantom and BSC. Mm -hmm. I found the bridging uh, UX not very good, so I didn't want to put my full amount, and thankfully I didn't, because like there was this one hack in the BSC bridge that costed them like eighty million dollars. That could have been like my money, you know, unbacked. And recently, I think the Solana wormhole hack, even though it wasn't like a bridge-related issue, it was a smart contract hack. Who would put like their life savings in there, anyways? So bridges are dangerous. They don't have the security guarantees that, that L2 dues inheriting their L1 parents. So I try to stay away from that on principle. So Tetranode, sometimes when David and I talk about Ethereum the way you just talked about it, you know, we call ourselves not necessarily ETH Maxi, but a decentralization maximalist. And then people are quite ready to point out, but Ryan, David, people don't care about decentralization. Okay, that's like, you know, some of you do, like the early crypto zealots do, the cypherpunks do, the crypto boomers. we get it. But mainstream isn't going to care, right? They just like, they can't pay these very high transaction fees. So they're just going to go where there's apps they want to use and transaction fees are low. You just made the case for decentralization. Why do you think decentralization actually matters to the rest of the world beyond us, like decentralization maximalists? Decentralization, the consequences that require decentralization is a fat-tailed event. Let's just say that you have like a bunch of nodes shutting down because they've grown too large. Then it's clear why we keep the Ethereum nodes, you know, very widely distributed rather than just like a handful in a data center. So we need decentralization also because we want it to be uh, censorship resistant too. Now, let's just say certain three letter agencies, you know, want to press on, say, a highly centralized uh, system and shut down their server, then you don't have the option of withdrawing your money or doing anything about it. So I think the world needs decentralization because of accessibility. So if you centralize it, there's going to be some fragile point that, that will bust sooner or later. Like we've seen it in all sorts of examples, like let's just say um, Binance, right? They're playing a dangerous shell game. And eventually that's going to blow up in their face. So that's the most extreme example of a permissionless blockchain that is still centralized. A lot of people use, and there's going to be trails of tears, you know, falling out in case anything happened to CZ or the entity that controls finance. So I would not touch that with a 10 foot pole. So Tetrano, we've just talked about kind of the layer one and your background, how you got into crypto and how you became a whale. Now we want to maybe talk about some of the, the projects that you're really interested in, because the theme of this episode is how we could become whales, okay? So the person that's listening to Bankless, following a similar track, <laughs> yeah. right? It's still, I think all of us believe it's still very early in crypto. There's a lot of opportunity out there. And you are in the midst of uh, harvesting a lot of opportunity. 
in some of these early DeFi applications. I want to talk about your Infinity Gauntlet. Sure. So this is the gauntlet that Thanos uses. And this is a meme that we've seen on Twitter. It's a meme of an orca whale with an infinity gauntlet and each infinity stone yeah. is a project that you have a stake in. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about this? Like, where did this meme originate? And tell us about the projects. Like, what does it take to become an infinity stone project for Tetranode? I think Ratwell just out of nowhere, you know, just drew that and I just rolled with it. <laughs> Yeah, Ratwell just drew it, you know, and then I added like a few projects onto that as like an initial meme. And it kept building on itself and, and it became so popular that now, you know, it's widely accepted that it's, it's associated with me. So, um, huh. some of the projects that we want to talk about, I mean, you can pick one and I could just talk about it. Not sure. I'm totally unprepared. No page rustling whatsoever. The list of projects that we have are definitely goes down the line of stuff that we've been thinking about recently, which is Curve, Convex, DopeX, and then also Rocket Pool. Like, why those capture your interest? But I kind of actually want to throw it back to you, Tetranode. Say I am a strapping young founder of some upstart DeFi application, and I aspire to be an Infinity Stone on Tetranode's gauntlet. Like, what do I got to do? Like, what's the criteria? How do I become, as a DeFi app, an Infinity Stone on your gauntlet? Like, what makes you really, really care about the product that I have? I guess, like, what I look for is product market fit, you know? So how it incorporates into my day-to-day -day operations, right? Let's just say, like, your uh, Sysmo DAO, which is right in the eye right there. Right. I talked to the founders, you know, actually the founders reached out to me and, you know, briefed me on the project. And immediately I found a use case for it, right? Which is to anonymously attest that you have what you claim you have. Let's just say that you wanted to prove that you have a, uh, a punk, you know, an alien punk without proving, without like showing which one you do. Well, Sysmo with CKP can do that. So that immediately sparked my interest. And, and so does the, the conversation of tokenomics come into question or is it strictly like, oh, as soon as you saw product market fit, you were on board and like we can fix or tinker with the tokenomics later? Yeah, well, I'm not too worried about the tokenomics because I usually get the ear of the founders and you know I, I would give them input on what works and what doesn't. Mm. So eventually it'll kind of converge on what I envision it to be. Mm -hmm. Some projects more than others, you know, but I'm always like uh, happy to lend input, you know, in, into the tokenomics and, and make it so that the treasury doesn't leak. Because I know, I know exactly when the treasury leaks because I'm a farmer <laughs> and farmers takes the most advantage of those three giveaways and stuff like that. So I tell them things like, don't do buybacks, don't do buybacks, you know, like that, that would cause the treasury to bleed and it doesn't do anything. You know, it doesn't do anything for, for your token in the long run. So the thing you look for then Tetranode is product market fit above all else, it sounds like. Yeah. The token economics, it doesn't really matter because those can be tweaked and changed on the fly. The hard part about these projects, about getting on the infinity gauntlet yeah. is, do you have product market fit? Do you have something novel that will work and there's a big addressable market size? Is that how you evaluate these things? Yeah, yeah, addressable market size, you know, and what I can do with it as an end customer. So that's how I found these project and that, that's why they're so useful. And, and, you know, I don't think there's any that ever fell off the gauntlet, you know. So we've got a very talented analyst behind Bankless. His name's Ben. And he recently gave me this take that farmers 
have the best alpha just because they are the deepest in the protocol and they just understand the strongest dynamics. Do you agree with that statement? And can you, if you do, like, could you elaborate on why farmers just understand things better than generally everyone else? Yeah, because we're all trying to make money. <laughs> it's so simple. Farmers are operators, you know, they don't just like buy and hold based on what BitBoy recommends. They go in there, you know, and they operate themselves. They know exactly when their treasury bleeds. So the feedback loop, you know, is very close to the metal, as close to the dollar as you can get. I want to get back to the infinity gauntlet, but this is an interesting side path here. Um, who are some of the other farmers that you respect in the space? Let's see. A shout out to... <laughs> addresses that you watch. Yeah. A shout out to one of my earlier partners in crime. His name is Playa. It's spelled P... L-E-Y-U. Let me just make sure on my Twitter that I got his handle right. It's a uh, crypto punk with a uh, headband and purple glasses. Yeah, the female crypto punk with a headband. Yeah. About to get some followers so, here. <laughs> so the other one is Bijan Spartan. You know, he's the one who prompted me that sparked my interest in coming back to the space. You know, rather just retired and hold, you know, to take a more proactive stance in his face because I saw the amount of alpha, you know, even though that he's he's like this obnoxious guy, you know, full of hentai and just like these shit posts, you know, and uh, he's crazy, but he's onto something, you know, so I followed him ever since and I followed in his footsteps and I actually became the DGM Spartan in 2021. And um, I guess I took it one step further in that I can move markets in ways that he couldn't even imagine. But he is my senpai. <laughs> I still want to go down this path. And I also still want to come back to the Infinity Gauntlet. But like when you say you can move markets, uh, so David and I don't do a lot of that, <laughs> right? <Yeah>. Like <laughs> we're kind of like fundamental investors sort of buy and hold, right? We're not. We make content. <laughs> right. And so like, what do you mean? What powers do you have? What, how are you moving markets? Like how does this work mm. behind the scenes? I think. I can form bottoms, you know, or just cause FOMO by either tweeting or just moving the markets myself with brute force. So all the tools are available to me. And I also like talk a lot to founders, you know, and in conversation with them on the directions of things. So once I hear the news, you know, I just like snatch it off. It's, uh, I can move markets up to an extent. And so let's put it into a more realistic perspective here. Now I am not the market maker in Ethereum. That's why my profile picture is an orca, not a blue whale, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah, there are like people, you know, with like 30x my net worth and those are the real market makers, you know, like 3AC is a market maker, like Alameda is a market maker. Um, I think Jump Capital is a market maker. I'm just like a DeFi DGen, you know, who happens to move like coins that are nine figures or less. So I don't consider myself like that big of a market maker. So you still ape into things. You're an aper. Aper, yeah. I mean, the whole market is just so inefficient right now, and the information asymmetry is almost vertical, that if you see anything like convex, you know, getting pushed down to $2 by farming dumpers, then there's your meal ticket right there. Mm. So the information asymmetry still happens here, even with the majors like Ethereum. It hasn't been priced in. Mm -hmm. Like the true valuation, market valuation Ethereum has not been priced in. Otherwise, Ethereum would be like number one by a wide margin just because of the amount of money settled, the fees paid, you know, and with the news of the merging coming up, the tokenomics coming up, I don't see a reason why Ethereum shouldn't be number one, you know, in the future. But that's, that's a free market, you know, and I could be wrong, but I'm willing to bet my money 
where my mouth is. As are we. Tetra, no, that was one of the first things that I really noticed about the space is the significance of information asymmetry all over the place. Mm -hmm. And it was so compelling. It was so addicting. It was like dopamine rushes. Every time you could find this information asymmetry is dopamine rush after dopamine rush. Yeah. But also at the same time, for me personally, my personal disposition is that I second guess myself to the point of not pressing the button on my ledger. And so back to a, like a psychological question is like, it's one thing to be able to identify information asymmetry, but it's another thing to actually have the conviction to actually move the markets and actually place your money where you actually have that conviction. Yes. Do you have any thoughts about like how to actually go from identifying information asymmetry to actually acting on it in the best interest of one's portfolio? Yeah. So here's how I rationalize like my decision making. The information asymmetry exists in that you know it, while the most of the other players do not. So this doesn't surface, this doesn't have consequences until like several months down the road, right? So you either act on it or you wait until you know someone else shows it to you. By then, of course, you wish you would have. So it's better to sort of be on my own judgment than to wait to get validated, you know, after the fact. And the reason why I can be confident in that is because like I have many, many years of, you know, like failed ventures behind me, not to mention like first principle understanding of like how the tokenomics and everything works. So it's just a matter of experience. So the way I look at it is that there's a lot of sophisticated trading firms out there, you know, with like dozens of analysts and yet they have not like outperformed me. I believe it's because they have all the tools in the world at their disposal, but ultimately it's their personal intuition to make a call. Hmm. So, you know, you could have like this state of the art fighter jet that you're piloting on, but ultimately how well you fly it is up to you to pilot. Yeah. So no matter how sophisticated some things might be in crypto or hectic, it might be in crypto, trust your intuition at the end of the day. Tetranode, we were just a minute ago talking about kind of like whales having the power to move markets. And, you know, I'm curious a bit more about that. So in what circumstances would you want to move a market? Or like, how are these whale games played? Because I do think sometimes whales, maybe some, some deservedly so, get kind of a bad rap for like dumping on people, for example, dumping on retail, dumping on the smaller fish. Um... Is there a place for, I guess, the um, the gentle whale or the the benevolent whale who doesn't play those sorts of games? Um, what's your take on these things? Are there good whales and bad whales? And how does the smaller trader interact with these forces? Um, there are a lot of ways to answer these questions, you know, from my perspective, because like for certain areas, like in Ethereum and Bitcoin, you know, the majors, like I am just another retail trader, you know, and I'm at the mercy of the market makers, which I do not know. But when it comes to like smaller coins that I am a seed investor in, I have complete market control over it. And pretty much what I move, you know, what I say goes. So um, I guess for the markets that I control, we're just trying to, you know, liquidate the short sellers. Hmm. Like we withhold news and we have like timing of news that would cause the market to jolt up, but we do it first, you know, before we release the news. <laughs> but if there were any sort of like insider selling, I haven't, you know, experienced it myself, but I can imagine like, okay, you know, if you're part of the founding team, 
then and you have a fight you know and, and you get mad you suddenly like like sell about telling anybody that that's sort of front running the outbreak that you know this person the cto resigns from say you know project x so we i actually have like a couple of whale well rooms you know that i sit in and, and kind of you know just decide hey you know this month right now you know with certain releases we can actually like burn you know any kind of shorters that tries to bring the price down so yeah. Polygon is Ethereum's largest and most vibrant scaling solution to date. With millions of monthly users and all of the biggest DeFi apps, the Polygon ecosystem has turned into a blossoming metropolis of DeFi activity. Transactions on Polygon are quick and cheap, allowing users the freedom to achieve their DeFi goals, all while being economically anchored to Ethereum. But Polygon isn't just the proof-of-stake sidechain. The Polygon team is building a suite of scaling solutions, including Polygon Hermes, Maiden, Nightfall, and Zero, all with different design choices in order to be optimized for all possible crypto use cases. If you're a developer who wants to build on the Polygon ecosystem, go to the link in the show notes to check out their fantastic documentation. And if you're a user who just wants to experience fast and cheap DeFi, you can bridge over your ETH or other tokens and start playing around with any of the thousands of applications that are available on Polygon. Alchemix is a DeFi app that offers self-repaying loans that lets you spend money and save money at the same time. Alchemix allows you to deposit the DAI stablecoin into its vaults, which earns some of the highest yields that DeFi has to offer. You can then take a loan from Alchemix of up to 50% of the deposited DAI, and that loan automatically pays itself back from the yield that is generated from your deposit. It's a savings account that the banks don't want you to know about. Alchemix also has ETH vaults available, so you can get a self-repaying loan that's denominated in ETH. Coming up in Alchemix V2 is a bunch of cool new features such as credit delegation, multi-chain expansion, and DAO revenue sharing and vote boosting. Alchemix lets you get your interest payments on your deposits paid to you upfront. Check out the power of Alchemix at alchemix.fi and make sure to join their extremely vibrant Discord if you want to participate in governance or have any questions about the project. Living a bankless life requires taking control of your own private keys. Not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their Ledger hardware wallet. But the Ledger ecosystem is much more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet, the Ledger Live app, and soon the CL Crypto Life card powered by Ledger. The CL card powered by Ledger is a crypto debit card with powerful features like an instant exchange to fiat, where crypto assets are only sold at the moment that you swipe your card, and also credit from crypto collateral where you can collateralize your crypto assets in order to get a higher credit limit. You'll be able to manage your CL card powered by Ledger inside the Ledger Live app, right next to all the DeFi apps and services that you're already used to using, making the Ledger Live app your one-stop shop for all of your financial needs. Go to ledger.com, grab a Ledger, and download Ledger Live to get all of your DeFi applications all in one place. Is it important to you, Tetranode, to like, I guess, play long-term games, like knowing that you're a whale, not in Bitcoin and Ether markets, but knowing you're a whale in some of the projects that are on the infinity gauntlet side of things, you know, is the reason you don't dump on retail or play malevolent whale games, is it reputation, really? Is that what matters to you? And you know, talk about that a little bit, because it feels like every project you enter, a Tetranode, Infinity Gauntlet type of project, has your brand and your reputation stamped on top of that. How important is that to you? And like, are you playing the long-term game in these markets? Yeah, more or less. I'm lazy, so I like to guard my wealth. You know, so I, I don't go out and, and look for like positive funding or negative fundings in, in perp, you know, or, or try to scalp every movement. 
you know, that's up to the more sophisticated market maker to earn Delta Alphabet. But yeah, I don't like try to do that. Like, like there's a lot of different ways to make money in crypto. You know, like you could be like the tokenonic advisor and you can just get like one or 2% of like the organization that you're working with. Yeah. So the way that I make money nowadays is, is one, you know, farming and two, becoming involved with a project. So therefore, like I'm the advisor. So with the amount of projects looking for me, I have the option to turn it down because I'm overwhelmed, you know, with, with the amount of stuff that I have to help with. Like right now, I need to go and execute some things with Rari, you know, that I need to do like after this meeting. So it just seems like another project would exhaust my bandwidth. So there are some things that are not scalable with me. What are they looking for when they're looking for your advice? Are they looking for, uh, I mean, Everyone wants capital these days, but they're not just asking for your capital. They're asking for your expertise. Yeah. Are they looking for your farming expertise or just like branding expertise? Like what advice do you have that all of these founding teams really want? You know, some are market making, some are marketing strategies, some are tokenomics, you know? So I just wear a lot of hats. Like I've just been in the space so long, you know, in DeFi so long that everything is valuable. Experience is valuable. So recently, you know, like Jones Dow, um, they just launched their first donation event and it went bad the first time because like the bots just like ate it up because they had like an $11 million sales cap. So of course, like just one or two bots is able to snatch up like 90% of the token. So they, they were like, let's cancel it. Let's do it again. You know, so I advise the founder to do it again with a secret twist. Let's have a no limit uncapped ICO. And they did just that. You know, so we were able to raise 20,000 ETH. Hmm. And then what did we do? We returned 15,000 of that back to the participants. So now we have a fairly distributed token and the cap is only 5,000. So those are some, some of the tactical advice that I can give, you know, like uh, different things that can be exploitable. But in my experience, I'm the one exploiting it. So I can give advice on the defense of the dark arts. <laughs> so Tetranode, since we promised listeners we'd get back to the gauntlet and the affinity stones, could we just like quickly rattle off the projects that we're talking about here? Yes. And so, I mean, people who are watching YouTube see a bunch of logos, but could you rattle off the main projects that you're involved in that you really like? That are currently on the Infinity Zones on the Infinity Gauntlet. Okay. Yeah, because I guess they change, don't they? Yeah, but what's here now? Okay, so the one that I want to point out first is Dopex. That's my highest conviction, and it still is. And they're executing and pushing out stuff like there's no tomorrow. We have like 50 different projects, you know. We're trying to integrate with our option vaults, you know, the SSOV, Single Staking Options Vault. So that would allow composability in terms of options and allowing the project to have more capital efficiency. You know, it allows markets to speculate on their prices while they continually accrue fees from the speculation. And then the next product that's coming out is the Atlantic puts. Now we're still talking about Dopex here, you know, so it will allow for, for simpler words, uh, limit orders that you can farm the underlying asset, you know, while, while you put the limit order up, let's just say that you wanted to put like a limit order for DPX, you know, Dopex token at $1,000. So while you're waiting, you can use that $1,000 
to farm with integrated and you won't get liquidated or anything while the uh, Atlantic puts is in session. Hmm. You know, so we'll have a combination of Atlantic puts and calls and we have like 50 different DAOs, you know, signing up. So the market, the addressable market for DOPEX is probably like in the 11 figures, you know, if we're being frank about it. Wow. And we're pushing out with our stable coins too, the DPX USD, which is created from RDPX. RDPX is created from sort of the tears, you know, and angers of failed calls and puts. <laughs> so it's an amazing tokenomic system that, you know, have most faithfully followed my advice. I just think like the entire DOPEX team is amazing and there are a lot of people smarter than me and I'm just doing, you know, one, the backend tokenomic advising and two, the market making and three, the marketing. So the option stuff, I'm still learning on the go as well. And there's a lot to cover, but that's my highest conviction. This is all on layer two as well, Yeah. Right? So, Dopex? so yeah, yeah that's cool. the layer two decision-making was mine and Deepak God when the TSOC chat asked me, you know, do we want Dopex on layer one or layer two? So I say go layer two because we can attract capital to layer two, you know, and do the Ethereum ecosystem a favor. Hmm. Not to mention that the money follows us, you know, not the other way around. We make the money follow us. So ultimately, we're one of the largest TBL on Arbitrum currently. That's awesome. Very cool. What else you got? Um, let's see. Redacted and Olympus, you know, are partners. Like they own about 10% of each of their DELs. So I think we're sort of tweaking the. 3-3 model so that anytime that it reaches nearly the risk-free value of the treasury underneath that we're able to redeem, you know, and do some treasury operations just to make sure that the tokens, you know, are redeemable or, or at least uh, we have a limit floor, you know, at the RFP. Butterfly is using their CVX token, you know, and recently they just like acquired Voltamap to kind of influence the voting on liquidity. So when it comes to Olympus and Redacted, it's all about liquidity control. So would you group Olympus and Redacted? Are you grouping them as kind of the same project or are they just sort of related? They're partners, they're partners. Like the reason Redacted existed is because like their treasury would deal with more volatile tokens that the Olympus treasury just wants to stay stable, right? So the goal of Olympus is to have a stable token, you know, that's backed. And we have this sort of 3-3 going on, but we're trying to reduce that that 3-3, you know, to a few thousand percent a year instead of like 58,000% at some point in time in the past. So I think we're starting to reach the point where, where the stability, there is a hard floor where the risk-free value is. Olympus recently had like a 80% drop, something like this. Yeah. Um, a lot of people were saying like project's dead, it's over, like everyone to go home, that sort of thing. It sounds like you don't see that. Yeah. What do you see? What happened with this big drop? And then how does Olympus resurrect? I think it's because like in the bear market, the monetary premium drops down to zero, if not even negative, you know? So... All of a while, they kind of overlook the fact that Olympus has like the second largest treasury in DeFi. So I think we have currently about 500 or $600 million at our disposal. And if the moment the market cap of Olympus uh, is below the, the treasury, then of course we can do market operations that brings it to the floor. So I'm not too worried about like people freaking out or saying it's over. 
because this is uh, one hell of a back punt. <laughs> it is backed at the bottom. This is what we were talking about earlier, where you like there's information available to you to understand that there's a market efficiency somewhere, and it's up to you to press the buttons on your ledger or your MetaMask to take advantage of that situation. And sometimes it's actually as simple as verifying on chain. Let's keep going through the gauntlet then. What else you got? So now we have like the next one, the Fave protocol or AKA Fave Rari since Fave and Rari merged. So you have the young talented Rari team, which I uh, work closely with, you know, merging with the larger and more well-capitalized Fave with Joey Santoro and their brilliant team, you know, coming together. And they're coming out with like some extremely awesome product that will increase capital efficiency even further. So one example is the standard they're making is ERC4626. So that allows for depositing of yielding assets, you know, like let's just say CVX CRV, you can deposit into Fuse and then you can borrow money from it while you're staking, while you're staking and earning like the regular income from convex. So there's no reason why you shouldn't put into Fuse because then you have more stables to farm with, or you can lever it up, you know, what, whatever you like. And then FaZe is coming out with like a couple of other products as well. Like one of their maker down moment is Turbo. They can now mint Fae, you know, off of like certain pools and you can get interest-free Fae from farming, from depositing an asset and then farm with it. Yeah. I think the one I'd like to ask about Next is something that I think all of us actually share in common, which is really just a lot of optimism about Rocket Pool. But I'd love to hear from you about why you think Rocket Pool is a interesting project. Rocket Pool is the only decentralized staking option right now. Like all the other ones requires like elements of trust and it's down to like, uh, yeah, I don't want to name any of the other staking pool. There's a lot of staking projects out there, but Rocket Pool allows you as a node operator to stake other people's like uh, ether. And then you can earn fees off of that and it's paid out in staking rewards and RPL. Now RPL isn't just like a useless governance token, it's actually used as insurance, you know, that's required to get staked into Rocket Pool. So it does have intrinsic value and now its intrinsic value is tied to the value of the staked ether, right? Because you need at least like 10% RPL as insurance to your staking lot. But there's a lot more that we can do, you know, with the Rocket Pool token. The community right now is, is just like busy with executing the various bits and pieces right now. We're doing curve integration, you know, and we're figuring out how to make it more liquid for Rocket ETH. Tetranet as an ETH whale, do you feel comfortable like depositing your ETH into Rocket Pool or like a, you know, significant portion? of your ETH into Rocket Pool and staking it that way, or is it still too early in your mind? Um, You know, like that's on a back burner for a while and I should, because what I want to do first is run a Rocket Pool node myself. But right now I'm at a situation where I have like a dozen DAOs constantly pinging me and I just haven't had the bandwidth to go down and sit down myself and do it. Like what I like to do is have like a firsthand approach to it. No, rather than say, oh, hey, buy my stuff. Like, I got to go and investigate myself before I do it. Totally. I think one theme that's coming across this whole conversation is actually using these DeFi protocols is what is really giving you your edge here. 
in this entire space. Yeah. Not buying a token on Uniswap using the product. Not buying a token because a YouTuber said you should buy it. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah. buying like, a token because Tetranode said you buy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's always like the first principle approach, you know? And also, just as importantly, skin in the game. Mm -hmm. you know, I see too many VCs, you know, like, like incorrectly evaluating a product because they're theory crafting. And they're sitting under armchairs and they're reading the white paper, but they've seen nothing, you know, on the ground below. So that's, that's what makes me different. And that's why a lot of protocols seeks me out because like I'm out there, I'm executing, I'm in the front line, you know, I'm a general, but I'm also like, like, you know, doing the shooting as well. So I love that term. Yeah. Theory crafting is awesome. One question I have about the infinity gauntlets is why the chain link logo is wrapped around the Ethereum ether logo. Is that strategic or is that just, am I reading into this too much? Hmm. Chain link is like an agnostic framework, you know, an agnostic framework used as an Oracle right now. And it's anchored mainly on the Ethereum blockchain, even though it could choose like all the different blockchains, you know, to record its Oracle data until because Ethereum is mostly centralized and it's the most resilient. So I think Chainlink and Ethereum, you know, goes hand in hand because Chainlink is, is kind of agnostic, so it can be anywhere. And yet it chooses to be on Ethereum. So I think it, it will do well, you know, if Ethereum does well. What else is left? I feel like we talked about a lot of the Infinity Stones. I think Curve is left. Yeah. You want to talk about that? And is there anything else? I think Curve right now is evolving and it's progressing because we're having like Curve V2 where anybody could put up their stuff like Uniswap, but with a twist that, that you know, we pay out in our CRV token. The CRV tokenomics is one of the best that I came across. And it, it still is to this day, you know, like the way that CRV is issued, it's kind of uh, a bidding war and that creates a secondary economy across like a DAO who wants to control it, right? So at the very base, CRV is responsible for earning fees, you know, off of like the Curve platform. What happens is when you introduce like a voting system on it to vote who gets the CRV, you're basically bidding for the right to earn a dollar. So how much is that right to earn a dollar worth, you know? So that's the monetary premium incurred by the CRV. Yeah, we can do like an entire episode about this, but to keep it within the, the scope of our discussion, um, the CRV token, you know, it provides like a different market from what the normal AMM like Uniswap V3 is doing right now. And it seems to have a lot of capital locked up. I think about 20 billion the last time I checked. We actually recently did a, a full entire episode on Curve, Convex, and that whole ecosystem. And it really just struck me and Ryan as something, exactly what you just said, is very significantly different from almost everything else that we're seeing in DeFi. And it actually kind of made me a little bit scared for everything else that's not Curve in DeFi, because all of the... Um, layers on top of Curve really add on what seems to be like a bunch of armor to Curve. Like Curve really seems to be layering on a bunch of just like peripheral protocols that are also built on Curve that are all fighting, exactly what you said, fighting for the rights to earn $1. Right. And that fight itself is some sort of like decentralizing force around the Curve application itself. And I remember getting into DeFi and Ethereum in the first place, kind of to answer my own question about why I was bullish on Ethereum and DeFi back in 2017, even before we had invented DeFi. It's because I imagined stuff like that. And now in 2022, like, it's only Curve. 
Do you also share that same concern as in like only really Curve has this kind of Curve Wars layer on top of it and the rest of DeFi is doing like these DeFi governance tokens and what is a governance token anyways? Like, yeah, maybe one day we'll vote in fees. Like, do you share that concern? Um, well, the Curve ecosystem, you know, it has the network effect right now that everyone wants their stable to be on Curve because there's already a lot of liquidity on Curve. But more than that, you know, like they're sort of AMM Curve is pretty brilliant in terms of like how capital efficient it can get, you know, and how scalable it is. I feel like with the Uniswap tip, you know, it does a lot of really cool things, but it poses a lot of problems for market makers like myself, you know, liquidity providers like myself. Such as like, if I were to provide like, uh, say a million dollars on Uniswap V3, you know, for something like a stable, then I would have to concentrate the liquidity and I would have to fend off against the just-in-time attack. Mm. But also, like, when I'm providing and it creates, like, some Oracle issues, you know, having concentrated liquidity like that, where if you run an Oracle off of Curve's liquidity, you don't run into that liquidity cliff, you know, incurred by concentrated liquidity, if you know what I mean. Like, some of the stuff, you know, is kind of, like, rotator territory, and I'm stumbling as a word self. <laughs> yeah. Would I go so far to assume that you are bullish CRV and bearish uni? Um, I wouldn't say bearish uni because I use Uniswap for certain things like limit orders. And I can see where, where like if you're a sophisticated market maker, then you're able to earn a lot of the fees. Right now, like the thing that I see with Uniswap is that they have their 0.01% stable swap. And it's right now like 50% of the volume of like the tables coin traded. So that's very useful. But as a uh, liquidity provider, I'm not so sure if I'm able to uh, do that, you know, and still be profitable. Like 0.01% is basically doing it for free. So there's opportunity costs where Curve pays more. So I'm waiting to see in the long run, you know, where the steady state equilibrium is in terms of Curve market share versus Uniswap market share. And it's a free market, so I'm waiting for it to battle out. But I wouldn't count Uniswap V3 or, you know, Uniswap team in general out. They're both brilliant. Do the concerns about, like, oh, governance tokens, it'll just turn on fees one day. Like, we've been saying that for, I don't know, as long as governance tokens have been around. Curve is actually spitting out fees to the governance token holders. But, like, that's, again, that's the only one. Does the whole just trope of, oh, yeah, uni, comp, you know, insert your governance token here. It'll just one day turn on fees and spit out fees to the token holders. That's a line that we've said. Do you believe that line? And so like, do you follow that, you know, governance just has value somehow? Or are you concerned about like the fact that maybe these applications don't actually put out dividends in the way that we might expect them to? Yeah, I would advise like the vast majority of my projects that I'm on to have profit sharing at some level. Hmm. Otherwise, people will take profit in one way or another. So they're going to take profit by going the usual route, which is to sell it, hmm. right? But with profit sharing, you can create a system where you can stake it, you know, and take away that liquidity and give the tokens of intrinsic value cash flow, you know, of the platform. So let's just say if you're a DAO building a big treasury, well, all you have to do is just like launch with like, you know, 30 or 40% of the token. So you still earn the platform fees, but also you build a monetary premium, you know, off of your token because it has cash flow. Those without cash flow, you know, it's 2022. 
the government thing doesn't really work because the voting, you know, is more or less like a handful of entities just deciding the outcome of the vote anyways, the decision making anyways. And sometimes, you know, like the voting isn't even binding, you know, like back a while ago, your finance had a vote on whether, you know, they should like print more tokens or keep it at 30,000 the way it is. And of course, like they voted to keep 30,000 tokens. And of course that was never honored. So I feel like the governance token vote, you know, it's just like a decentralization theater when it comes to it. No, and it's, it's not very well understood how it should be used effectively. So, you know, profit sharing or, or just uh, shenanigans. <laughs> shenanigans. Uh, so many things are underpinned by shenanigans in this industry. Yeah. I want to pivot the conversation a little bit to the conversation of layer twos, because as we all think that we know, we're all about to do this whole L layer two migration. I've started to migrate a portion of my portfolio and other people are doing the same. Some people are already living a layer two life. Yeah. I'm wondering how much of a layer two life you've been able to live and what do layer twos need to do to convince somebody like Tetranode to completely live a layer two life, 100% on layer two? Have you started dabbling in layer twos and what would it take for you to move over completely? Right. So I have like, you know, one third of my portfolio in layer two. Hmm. Um, it's going well. There are certain problems, you know, there are certain use cases where I say layer two is just not there yet for me. And that's like the lending market right now because Arbitrum has been shown to have some spotty downtime. And I think it's, it's because it lacks redundancy in this infrastructure right now. So if you were like at Ave or Fuse right now, you know, like you have to prepare for the scenario where if Arbitrum went down for an entire day, you know, and the market crashed, you know, you have to have such a margin that you don't run into bad debt. You know, I remember some back and forth with Ave, you know, and they have measures to kind of prevent that. But as the entire layer two infrastructure, there needs to be more provision. So that's the challenge that they have. Are you privy to kind of the constructions of these different layer twos? And if you are, do you have like a preferred layer two that you feel safest on? Um, the ideal layer two would have fast withdrawal time, you know, without having like a third party, like Synapse, you know, or a cross protocol, you know, arbing and charging a fee. So... I think CK Sync is sort of the holy grail of scaling. It's just that it hasn't had like a generalized EVM compatibility just yet. You know, that that's where everybody should be. So I think the end game of Ethereum is to either have like EVM compatible Stark or ZK Sync. Before that, you know, like we do have several ZK Sync app, you know, we have several StarkNet app, but the ZK Sync scaling is per app. So it lacks composability. Let's just say DYDX, right? So you can't really build on top of that because you have to be like per protocol rollup. So yeah, we need a generalized EVM compatible ZKP scaling solution. Yeah, so it seems like you're really excited about ZK rollups because you have just those extra assurances about fast withdrawals and some of the assurances about its uptime. But what you also kind of just indicated is that you're also really interested in like the composability that you kind of only really get on, at least for right now, on an optimistic rollup, something that is much more EVM compatible. Yeah. Is there a tug of war here or how do you square these two things? I think in the very, very long run, we'll see like CKP as the end game. Mm. I mean, I'm sure like Stark, you know, is more effective, but right now it's just like closed source. But ZK Sync, I'm favoring right now because it's open source. But, you know, we don't know what's going to happen over the period of 10 years. 
And also like Stark is also quantum resistant too, so that that's future proof. Whereas ZKP may or may not be. So still waiting for the market to have the final say. Do you have a favorite L2 activity? What app on L2 do you use the most? Right now, it's, it's still Bex. Still Bex. So I used to farm on there. I also like buy options on there, market make on there. So that's the extent of it. But I'm still, you know, speculating on how dependable like lending services is, you know, in the face of like day long failure. So I'm kind of uh, avert to using leverage on L2s. Tetranode, I want to ask a question that's been, you know, some of the news recently, but like, I think very much in this conversation, there's kind of the VC, almost institutional side of crypto and of DeFi. And then there's like the more DeFi native side, right? So you have like VCs over here and you have like DeFi whales, liquidity providers like yourselves. And sometimes you have like VC DeFi style startups, and then you have like more DeFi native startups. And the ecosystem is interesting because on the DeFi native side, you have these DeFi native builders and these liquidity whales like yourselves. One of them that's been notable lately is Danny from the Wonderland Project, Danny Sista. And that project seemed to go off the rails in it, you know, like a pretty big way, right? There's like controversy in the space. Yeah. There's like, I mean, bankless listeners know there's a convicted felon, maybe possibly like running this thing. What do you think about that whole situation? Do you have any like learning lessons or thoughts coming out of that? Yeah. Um, in so many things, like I could say, you know, to resolve it to different perspectives. But first and foremost is that Danny personally is a friend of mine. You know, he's always been one-to-one -one with me for financial dealings. And he has also saved me several times by tipping me off to various things that I cannot discuss here. <laughs> um, but his relationship with Sifu, you know, like I don't want to speculate too much into what it is, but I just don't want to be associated with uh, corruption, you know, with that out of an actor. Danny is very Italian and he deals with people personally in a very Italian manner, right? And so sometimes, you know, like it works on a personal connection basis, but business-wise, it might not be working out so well, you know, like sometimes it's not a scalable operation, you know, to deal with people in such a personal manner like that. One challenge I think that that whole situation really posed on everyone is we want everyone to be able to maintain their privacy for obvious reasons, but also when it comes to developing DeFi applications that, you know, eventually ultimately comes down to users pressing the approve button on their MetaMask saying, I do approve of this contract, touching my money. There's an interaction there between an Anon developer and approvals and trust. How have you navigated this world? The Danny situation is, you know, one of many situations in the broader, you know, crypto ecosystem. And I expect this to be just an even more significant conversation moving forward, especially as U.S. regulations starts to really incentivize anonymity in the developer space. How have you navigated the very murky waters, the fog of war, if you will, as we started this podcast with? How have you navigated the waters of just like anons as an anon yourself? How have you dealt with, let's just like, figuring out how to play the crypto game well like you know about half of the industry is anonymous yeah i mean it's a different layers of trust right let's just say like in the traditional finance world you know you are compelled by by the force of law it's like okay if you do something wrong you know it's a lawsuit it can cost like 
your financial situation to go down or you can get arrested and put in jail. But in here, you know, if you trust the wrong person, then instantly you get rugged and, you know, the punishment is a crime. So the way that I deal with that is through having a lot of eyes, you know, on certain things that requires my scrutiny. Let's just say like I was farming on in a non-project, let's just say Machi Big Brother, Jeffrey Huang, you know, like, like serial pump and dumper, you know, and I was farming on that project called Myth. It was a long ago, you know, like Myth Finance, it was a fork of basis. So how do I know this guy is not going to rug me? Well, I go and I looked at the diff checker, you know, between like the uh, synthetic fork rewards and the original staking contract. And so I don't see anything that says like change of ownership of address, then I think that that's okay, you know. So I also have like several eyes, you know, like in this secret Discord group that we're totally not in, right, David? <laughs> that just kind of scours uh, the code basis for various anomalies. So we have so many eyes on that. So I think I kind of run like an anon team, you know, of analysts in which I am the analyst myself and everyone contributes. So. That's the system of trust, you know, that I built over this past cycle and it's worked well for me. It's really funny how social crypto actually is, right? And it's like all of these different groups, some anon, some represented by like, you know, just depictions of cats, you know, all sorts of craziness, but yet it's all people at the very bottom of this. And there is some trust exchange on that level. As we start to draw to a close here, Tetranode, I want to ask this question, right? So I feel like Hopefully listeners have absorbed what it's like to, like your transition from sort of becoming a noob in this space where we all started to becoming like the tetranode crypto whale that we know you are today. How would you summarize advice for someone who is trying to take a path like that? They're a small fish, little fish. We all started that way in crypto. We all want to be whales. We all want to be whales. Yes. How does someone become a whale? What are kind of the steps or what advice would you give them? Okay. So the first one is, of course, like the one that I hammer over and over and over again, which is like first principle approach, you know, like learn the basic building blocks, learn the, the basic cryptography and then build from there, you know, the implication and then the economics, you know, and work it all the way to the top to where you see a project that lines up from the bottoms up. Um, the next one that I want to emphasize is sort of the skin in the game approach, which is to operate, operate, operate. So do something, you know, anything, cause like in the end, like, even if you did it something wrong, you would know what not to do next time. And that's empowering, you know? So, so don't just do it blindly, do it with the first principle backing, you know, that you have, even if it doesn't work a hundred percent of the time, you have guidance there. Right. So first of all, do something, but also have like the research and knowledge backing it. Tetranode, you have such a presence on Twitter. You have these fantastic illustrations and memes that I think you have just like fantastic designers for like meme artists, crypto meme artists. And kind of like how we started at the beginning of this podcast, like people follow what you say on Twitter. They follow the memes. They follow the Internet crypto native culture that I think is something that you're helping create. They also follow you on chain. They see what you're up to. They see what you're doing. Right. In five, 10, 20 years, what do you think the legacy of Tetranode will be? Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll just like disappear off the internet like after I get bored or, or something. Satoshi style? 35 to 40 years, you know, like my kids are my legacy. So that's the end of that. For all the games that we play, you know, in my view, 
Like I can be successful. I can be like 12 figures, but I wouldn't be successful if, if uh, my kids wasn't there to enjoy it. You know, so family is what really matters at the end. Just that they will be all that remains of you, you know, like many, many years from now. You plan to teach your kids how to DeFi Tetranos? <laughs> yeah, I'm already having like test cases with like, you know, kids around my neighborhood and they seem to be, you know, it's like Tetranode, when are we making the Zoom call? We should make a Zoom call weekly. <laughs> and I've been kind of slacking on that because, you know, like the bandwidth is very thin because I have like a newborn and a toddler, you know, and yeah. uh, they're eating up like most of my time nowadays. Yeah. And then crypto eats up the rest, as we know. Right. Tetrano, this has been a fantastic conversation, and I think we've learned so much. We wanted to ask this question at the very beginning, but like, I think it's actually a better fit at the end. Mm -hmm. I haven't asked it the whole time, but what is a tetranode, actually? Oh. Like, what, what is a tetra? What does that mean? Okay, so a tetranode is like a quick to uh, sort of villain or destination where the Strogs is the nerve center of the Strog's like processing, you know, like on the planet Strog in Quake 2, I believe. Or was it Quake 4? It's a Quake but, reference. Yeah, it's Quake. Of course, of course. Why didn't we see that coming? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fun fact here is that, you know, like one of my uh, best crypto buddies, um, Tsok Chad, it's a high level villain from RuneScape as well. Mm. So, uh, you know, RuneScape and Quake, you know, the old school stuff. So we said, we're going to rug pull you because we said there was going to be last question, oh, yeah. but I want one more. No rush. I don't know how old your kids are, but out of, maybe you take them to daycare. Maybe you shake hands with other parents. I don't. Okay. Well, regardless, let's imagine this scenario. Uh, <laughs> I am the babysitter. <laughs> okay. So in some scenario, you meet someone and they ask you, what do you do for work? What's your answer? Um, I say I'm a retired software engineer that sold like some startup, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's a fantastic answer. <laughs> yeah. What do you tell people you do, David? Oh, I tell them I've run a podcast and I tell them to subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah or I tell them I'm still working, you know, if it depends on the situation, really, like, I really don't want like people, you know, that I meet to still have like nine to five jobs and I say I'm retired, you know, I'm, I'm just saying like, right. oh, I work at home, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I still do because even in my retirement, I work like a hundred hours right. a week. It's not even a joke. <laughs> it's it's because like it's not because I'm compelled to to do the nine to five. You know, it's because I'm compelled to participate in the turf war. Does it feel like work? No, it feels like I have a compulsion <laughs> to go in and dominate and corner the market. It's a different motivation than say, you know, oh shit, you know. I got to get paid. Mm -hmm. Do you know, I, I kind of feel like we came full circle and we're back at StarCraft again. Mm -hmm. Like that's what you do full time. It's like, this is StarCraft, right? Yeah. It's funny. Yeah, it's just like the competitive impulse. Yeah. It's funny. I think Ryan and I might be resonating with you in a different weird roundabout way where, yeah. you know, we don't press the buttons on our ledgers as often as you do, but I feel like we've cornered the podcast market pretty damn well. And that's the thing that doesn't feel like work for us. It yeah, feels very, totally. very much like an addiction or a compulsion. Yeah, I mean, like related to what you said about the compulsion to like, you know, win, win, win is like, you know, Anthony uh, Sasano was just commenting to me like, like, how do I get like all the seed rounds that you're getting? You know, it's like, didn't you already get like a home run with Matic? Most you? of them. <laughs> Yeah. Didn't you already get a home run with Matic? And he, he was just like, you know, I just want to, you know, to win. That's all. Mm -hmm. I just want to win more. <laughs> yeah, that's the compulsion that we uh, have, you know.
Way more. Yeah, it can't stop, won't stop. And you know what? It's really another shared thing is like, I feel like so many people in space, well, you know, some people played poker, some people played chess. Almost everyone in the space has played video games mm -hmm. at some point in their life. And that's like a shared heritage. And I feel like somewhat video games has taught me almost everything I need to know about crypto, right? It's at least it's the, the foundations for a lot of those things. Yeah. So that sounds like uh, another thing you share. Um, Tetranode, it's been a real pleasure, man. Thanks for hanging out with us. Yeah. Um, looking forward to seeing how the stones on your gauntlet perform in the future and uh, just what you're up to next. Okay. It's always exciting. Ryan, David, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. So, you know, like in the future, maybe we'll make a return, you know, at some point, uh, maybe after Ethereum is 10,000, you know, and we're in a celebratory mood. Yeah, so it uh, yeah, sounds like May. Yeah. Is, that, yeah. is that about right? Well, send you a calendar yeah. invite. I, I didn't yes, say what so. year, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, so we'll stay in touch, you know, through Twitter and that room that we're all not uh, in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. that's totally. Right. No clue what you're yeah, talking about. Room. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, but we're, we're not in that room at all, so <laughs> we, we shouldn't even be communicating there. Mm -hmm. Bankless listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Tetranode. Tetranode, thanks a lot for hanging with us. Okay, David, Ryan, I will see you later. <laughs> Action items for you guys. We're going to put a list to all the projects in the Infinity Gauntlet, all the Infinity Stones for you there, so you have a, a reference uh, for that. And uh, also... We'll, we'll put a list of some of the Twitter accounts that Tetranode said you should follow, some of the, the other whales in the space. I don't know, David, uh, should we uh, put a link to that secret room that Tetranode was talking about? <laughs> you know, I think we absolutely sure. We'll spin up a brand, a brand new <laughs> Discord room. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I think, look, if Tetranode can do it, all of us can do it. But it, you know, it takes some time and dedication. You got to stay involved in these projects. That's what I learned coming out of this episode Risks and disclaimers, the one thing I also learned, and I know in every Bankless episode, is none of this was financial advice. ETH is risky, Bitcoin is risky, some of these DeFi projects are certainly risky too. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier, it's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the Bankless journey. Thanks a lot. <laughs>